All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, we'll be taking a look at um, a few verses together from chapter 1. Specifically, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Once you've found that place in the scriptures, I'd like to, to read it. So that we can uh, get the whole text in our minds and then I'll, I'll uh, explain some things about the text that I hope will, will make it clear and then, and then apply it to us. If you're there, I'll start reading in verse 3. Actually, I'll start in verse 1 so we get the context a little more. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Can we just take a moment and ask the Lord to help us to understand First uh, Peter 1 here, and then, uh, and then we'll get going. Lord, we ask you for your grace, for your kindness on us, that we would have ears to hear um, what you have ordained that First Peter um, should, should say to us. Um, we ask you that you'd help us to understand um, how his, uh, what, what Peter meant for his readers to understand and, and knowing that that is what um, God wants us to hear. Help us to see how to appropriate it to our lives. We ask you that by the end of this, this, uh, this sermon, the, this time together, considering the word, that we would be able to leave here blessing God, um, blessing you for the truths that we have reconsidered and reminded ourselves of. All this we ask in our resurrected Lord's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so tonight I'm going to reiterate a message that the Apostle Peter 
sent to a group of churches in Asia during the first century. I specifically want to hold out to you these focus in in verses 3 through 5. I want to hold out to you two big truths. One big truth, and then it's accompanied by another just as important truth. And the truths are these. God started our faith. That's truth number one. And the accompanying truth is that God is guarding our faith. God started our faith, and God is guarding our faith. So that first truth is something that happened in the past, and then the second is something that he's doing presently. Here's why I think it's important that we take the time tonight to consider what what Peter has to say to his readers. Because there are times when our faith feels fragile. There are moments when our circumstances seem insurmountable. There are times when perseverance in the faith appears impossible. And there are places in our lives where we will suffer because of our trust in Jesus. We'll face attacks through words of insult and actions of spite, be they subtle jabs or threats of life. Brothers and sisters, I intend to focus tonight on these two truths. That source an impenetrable hope and an inexpressible joy when we walk through the sufferings um, that God has allowed us to walk through. So I told you that we will be looking at verses 3 through 9. And so by means of setting up the context a little bit, I want us to consider what we need to know from the introduction um, before we move into to, uh, verse 3. And there, there are two points that I want to just bring, it, bring up. One is the author, Peter, and the other one is who are the readers. First, the author is the Apostle Peter. You'll remember significant details about who Peter is from your own New Testament reading. Um, so I'm not going to spend much time on that. He, just, to, just as a way of reminder, he was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He spoke his mind often, which led to rebuke often. Um, he was among the first, though, to recognize that Jesus was truly the Messiah. He's also the one who denies Jesus. And then also is given a chance, again, to serve Jesus, not only um, as his disciple, but, but as a foundational um, role in the start of the New Testament church. He's, he preached boldly after Christ's resurrection, and, and we see his character just develop and develop and develop. Now, about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus and the, the Spirit coming down at Pentecost, we have a letter here by Peter, writing as, as he says in chapter 5, a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ to a group of people scattered throughout the northern region of Asia during a time, either just before or during, the worst mass, one of the worst mass persecutions of Christians in history. All right, so this is, our, this is our author, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the readers, the readers, um, he's writing to churches that are comprised of both Jewish and non-Jewish Christians. Now, if, you, if, you, if you'd like... I'd love to talk with you further about why I see that, that, that this church is comprised of both Jewish people and, not, and non-Jewish people. We go through the letter, and there, there are different um, texts I'd show you. Um, for, for tonight's text, though, all you need to know is that his readers are Christians, okay? And we'll, we, can, we can spend more time on, on uh, the constitution of, of the church at another time. 
And the text describes the readers, however, from the introduction this way. Um, he, he calls them elect. Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, and so on. Elect, they're, so, they're, so they're chosen by God. Okay, elect, chosen by God. They're exiles. They're foreigners where they're residing right now. They're away from their true home. They're exiles not of Jerusalem or Israel, though some among them may have been exiles from Jerusalem or Israel, some other country, but they're exiles from their true home, heaven. And I think Peter is referring to them as exiles from heaven for two reasons. First, I understand because, because there are both Jews and non-Jews in these churches that he's writing to. It would be unfitting for Peter to say, to address the whole body and say, you are exiles. If, if you have Gentiles or you have non-Jews and Jews in the congregations. So, so he's not referring to this in a, in a national way. Um, so secondly, the, the concept of, of the believer's home being in heaven is a really common New Testament concept. Paul, Paul refers to what we just heard it read in, in our uh, grace-giving scripture, where our citizenship is in heaven. And we await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Paul, Paul mentions elsewhere that um, to be with the Lord is to be home. And so this, this idea that our true home is in heaven is, is, a, is a common uh, teaching in the New Testament. So there are exiles of the dispersion. And the word dispersion simply just means scattering. Okay? There's a, a spread of people throughout this, this pla- the, the, the northern region of Asia through uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the question of readership is actually much larger than I just summed it up as, okay? And so, and so I'm not going to spend, spend much more time on it than that. Um, but I wanted to at least give you an insight into what, the way I see it so that you can understand the way I'm handling verses 3 through 9. Um, we have churches um, comprised of Jew, non-Jew, but they're we're Christians. They're Christians. So then he goes on to describe the grounds for God's election of these people, by what agency he chose them, right? Um, he, he, the grounds for God's election was that he foreknew them. That was it. He just elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And then the agency is set apart by the Spirit. So, so he accomplished that by setting us apart by the Spirit, or his readers by the Spirit. And for what purpose? For obedience to Jesus. That's what, that's what Peter, Peter says. So I paraphrase, paraphrase it this way. To you who are chosen by God, temporarily dwelling away from your true home, scattered among non-Christians. While these believers may not have been home, they may have been spread thinly among a pagan world. They were here on purpose. God had them here on purpose. He knew these believers would be here right square during the turbulent times that they were living. In fact, long before this, he set these believers apart through the sanctifying work of his spirit. He planned that these people would come to trust in Christ and be cleansed by his blood shed only 30 years prior. And God did this, chose them, set them apart, cleansed them for the express purpose to obey Jesus and witness to the world around them of the hope in Christ. So if Peter were alive today and he were writing to Colonial, I don't think he would say anything much different. In fact, all he'd probably do is change the location. He'd say, he'd say, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Hampton Roads, right? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, set apart, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and so on. 
So colonial, we, we are chosen by God, temporarily dwelling away from our home, true home, heaven, and we're scattered among an unbelieving world. Have you ever overheard a conversation that directly applied to you, even though the person wasn't actually talking to you? And so, so you kind of like listened in, trying to get from it what you, what you can. Say you're a mother and you have young children and you overhear another lady telling another young mother who has three toddlers, you know, the one thing that got me through those years and you're craning your neck, just like waiting for it. Because you're, you're going to get this, you're going to get this gem of wisdom it wasn't really, you weren't being talked to, but it directly applied to you. Um, so, so tonight, that's what I'm, I'm going to recommend is going on here. As I read what, what Peter wrote to, to the believers in Asia, um, listen in, because this directly applies to you. Um, there's, there's, not even, there's not even a lot of, um, there's, not, there's not many steps that we need to take in order to see how this applies. It just, you read it, and yep, I'm, a, I'm one of these people too. So I, this means, this is true of me too, All right? <clears throat> so let's listen in. Listen like we're about to overhear how to be a mother of toddlers and somehow survive along the way. All right, let's take a look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God be blessed, Peter says. For what? Because he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter begins the content of his letter with an emotional outburst of personal praise to God. In saying, may God be blessed for this, the author is implicitly encouraging his readers to also bless God. Although he doesn't come out and tell his readers to do so. A proper application of this, of this, this expression by Peter to modern day would be that we should follow in Peter's example by responding as he does when he considers God's great salvation by blessing God. What's the proper response when we consider what we're about to consider? Well, what Peter did is fitting. You, you turn and you bless God for it. But he gets it out before he even starts to explain what he's blessing God for. So what has him so worked up? It's just the fact that um, God, sourced in his own merciful character, made something happen to us that we could never have initiated. We had no capacity to bring this about. No more than a tree has the capacity to plant its own seed. God produced spiritual life inside of a spiritually dead womb, spiritually barren womb. Notice the passive acted upon language here. This is the beginning of your salvation, okay? Something that happened to you. Not your choice to follow Jesus, not your faith or your repentance. Yes, your faith in Christ was the initial human act. But what Peter is saying here is something happened first, even before that. But what Peter is holding out as the source of hope for scattered believers who are temporarily away from home on this earth is this. God started this whole thing in you. He caused us to be regenerated. This is big truth number one, right? God started your faith. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope, the text says. The way that Peter uses hope within this same chapter, okay, he uses it three different times within chapter one. The way he uses the word hope indicates that he's using it, the term, as, as a quality or a disposition 
of expectation in something, or more specifically, in God, or in in a in, uh, future inheritance. It's a living hope as far as the basis for our hope is living. Um, Peter David's comments on the passage, this is what he says, says, this hope is not a desperate holding on to a fading dream, a dead hope, but a living one founded on reality. For it is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As Paul had argued, because Jesus really did shatter the gates of death and exists now as our living Lord, those who have committed themselves to him share in his new life and can expect to participate fully in its future. So our hope is living. Our hope is as alive as Jesus rose from the dead and is living today. The agency through which we get this hope the text said it was through the resurrection of Jesus. This is how we entered into the status of having a living hope, is because Jesus was raised from the dead. So Peter further describes the content of this living hope by calling it an inheritance. So if you look there in verse, in verse 3, how it says that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, comma, to an inheritance. That to inheritance is set up as an apposition. It's renaming the living hope. So it's further describing it. Much like Abraham was promised an inheritance of land and blessing, Christians are promised something far more, an inheritance that is with God in the new heavens and earth. One, one commentator calls it the believer's portion in the new creation and all its blessing. This is the inheritance. The believer's portion in the new creation and all its blessing, blessing of being son of God, having come into your, the full benefits of salvation. He uses three terms, Peter uses three terms now to describe that inheritance. Okay, the first one you see there, it says imperishable. An inheritance that is imperishable. It will never rot, it will never decay, it cannot ever be destroyed by the passing of time or whatever. It's imperishable. And he says it's undefiled. It can never be tainted or messed up by sin. Can't ever become ceremonially unclean. Like you read in the the Old Testament, things become ceremonially unclean and couldn't be used by God. Not this inheritance. It's undefiled. It's undefiled and it's it's unfading. It will never lose its brightness and its glory. And then fourthly, it's kept in heaven for, for us. It's kept in heaven for you, he tells his readers. It's not tied to, to something in this creation that can be affected in any way. It's, in fact, it's not even kept in this realm or sphere. It's kept in another realm completely. So if these things are true about the nature of our inheritance, then our hope, it would follow, is impenetrable. At least when it comes to this, this earth. Let me um, give you an example, and I will, I will disclaim this example. I tried to come up with a different one, but I couldn't. Um, how many of you are familiar with Star Wars? Oh, man, I'm sorry. That was a small hand showing. Okay, I have to do some explaining. All right, so, so the, the, I, I thought of this excellent, I thought, excellent illustration to explain um, our impenetrable hope 
since our inheritance is not in this world. And I was trying to think of something in this world that I could compare it to, and there isn't anything in this world because this is, we're talking about heavenly things here. So I had to think of something that, once I explain it, I'll say, okay, it's not like that. All right, so bear with me. All right, if you, if you know Star Wars, you've heard of the Death Star, right? Okay, so the Death Star... Um, was this weapon built by the Empire, and it was a planet destroyer, uh, and it was, it was just, it was the size of a planet, and I'm not a Star Wars geek, but it, it, it was the size of a planet, and it would destroy planets. Anyways, it was unstoppable, except for the fact that it had one weakness, right? And if you're familiar with the story, um, the rebels come, and they learn about the, the weakness, and they find it, and they're able to destroy it and stop the Empire, and uh, everything goes great. So, okay, imagine now that our hope was the power and strength and formidability of the Death Star, okay? Only you pulled the weakness out and put it in a different realm. Now what? It's unstoppable, right? So, forgive the crude illustration, but... The, the, the point I'm trying to make is if, if, if it is our expectation that we will surely inherit a life in God's presence for eternity because we've been born again and there's, there's nothing on this earth that can touch that hope. The source of our hope is impenetrable. No circumstance, no illness, no relationship struggle, no disorder, no suffering can rob us of that expectation. This is why Peter is going to encourage his readers to set your hope fully on the grace of that will be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're only going to set your hope fully on something that is trustworthy, right? So isn't that beautiful? (laughs) Our hope's impenetrable. That's all there is to it. So we find the second big truth in the next verse. Peter gives a little more information about the reality of his reader's identity as chosen ones by God. He says, who... All right, now he's going to say, you who are, um, you have this inheritance, okay? It's kept in heaven for you. Who, now we're going to explain the you a little bit further. Who, by God's power, are guarded through faith. Now, I like how, I like how um, Wayne Grudem put it in his commentary. He said, he said, he stresses that this is God's power. Yet God's power does not work apart from the personal faith of those being guarded but through their faith. He goes on to say God is continually using his power to guard his people by means of their faith. A statement which seems to imply that God's power, in fact, energizes and continually sustains individual personal faith. So did you get that? God is guarding us so that we will receive the full experience of salvation when Christ is revealed. How is he doing it? by thousands of angels guarding us and warding off attacks of Satan and his forces. That would be encouraging, right? Maybe, maybe he is. Um, but that's not what Peter, Peter says. No, no. By little old fragile, fickle human faith. Brothers and sisters, when you make the choice to trust God's word, to persevere in obedience... You are living out God's power energizing you and sustaining you to reach your inheritance. Right? Little old fragile, fickle human faith from your perspective. But this text says God is energizing that. 
And he's saying he's guarding it so that you will reach your salvation at the end. Like, so you will reach your inheritance, right? So truth number two is God is guarding your faith. Truth number one, God started your salvation. Truth number two, God is guarding your salvation. And he's guarding it for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is the future full possession of your inheritance, of your redemption. Sorry, verses six and seven. Peter goes on to observe that his readers are rejoicing in this. Okay, so verses, verses 1 all the way through verse 12 in, in Peter are indicative. Peter is just describing facts. He's saying that this is the case. This is happening. This is true. He's saying, you guys were born again. God is keeping you. You guys are rejoicing. This is happening. This is happening. This is happening. And then in verse 13... The mood changes, and now he's saying, so do this. That's imperative now, okay? So now he's giving things to do, giving things to do. You should do this, you should do this, you should respond this way. But up until now, he's just saying the way things are. He's describing reality. And he's telling, he's, he's observing you all, you know that you've been born again. And in fact, you're rejoicing because you know that you've been born again. He says, in this you rejoice, though now, verse 6, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And I'll, and I'll move on to verse 7 here in a little bit. So Peter goes on to observe, you're rejoicing in this. The content of this is everything from verse 3 to 5. The fact that God started your faith and the fact that God is guarding your faith. You're rejoicing in this, Peter notices. They take joy in that reality, even though or in spite of the fact that they must experience suffering for a little while. See Peter's perspective on suffering here. He says, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, all right, two qualifications, the little while is nothing can be to be compared to the weight of glory, as Paul says. It's temporary. We need to have this perspective too when we suffer. When God allows us to suffer, that is. But notice another interesting phrase Peter writes. He says, if necessary. Peter says, therefore, that Christians will experience grief only as it is necessary in the light of God's great and infinitely wise purpose for them, Wayne Grudem says. He continues and he says, in this hope of the future, you are continually rejoicing, although during this life for a little time, if God deems it necessary, you're grieved in various trials. He just summarizes it and paraphrases it for us. Every trial that God allows into our lives is an if-necessary trial. God in his wisdom placed it there. Man, so, so it's temporary, and it's allowed by God. All right, these are, these, are, these are concrete truths that we can hold to when we suffer, brothers and sisters. So a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And he's, Peter, using a, a, a term various trials, a term that indicates just generic suffering, suffering in general, right? He's not getting specific with, with, with one specific thing. He's, he's giving theology that will back all suffering. So we can see some examples, though, about how, how Peter's readers will be suffering um, in, in passages throughout, the, in, in chapter 2 and verse 12. You don't have to go there, but you can look ahead if you'd like. 2 verse 12, um, they're being spoken against as evildoers. 
So there's verbal suffering there. In chapter 3, verse 9, they're, they're being accused of evil and reviling, and they're being reviled, and they're being treated evilly. Chapter 4, verse 14 um, they're, they're experiencing insult for the name of Christ. So a lot of their suffering currently, uh, at least is what he, what he brings up, is verbal. Um, and, and, and that's going to be a lot of what we're experiencing now, um, if not in the near future, beyond, beyond just verbal. But look ahead into verse 7. This is why, if necessary, Peter's readers are going to suffer. This is why. So that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith that has been tested and proven to be genuine is more precious than gold. Here's why. Gold, though it gets purified as it is tested by fire, eventually perishes. Gold is one of the most durable materials around. And that stands, though, in stark contrast with something we were just considering, something that is imperishable, right? The imperishable in inheritance kept in heaven. So the imperishable inheritance that our hope is fixed to will never perish. So when our faith is tested by various trials, it's of far greater value than physical wealth, which eventually is destroyed. So why is genuine faith so valuable, though? Because when Christ is revealed from heaven, he's not going to be evaluating your net worth when you stand before him. He'll be evaluating your faith. And how do you quantify faith? How can you see someone's faith? James asked that question. You look at their works. You have faith? That's nice. I'll show you my faith by my works. Their perseverance through suffering, their sweet and gracious attitude, though you know they're going through difficulty. When we choose to obey God while we're suffering, we are demonstrating authentic, genuine faith. And Peter says that the genuineness of faith will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes back. If you look at verse 8 with me, though you've not seen him, you love him. Again, remember, he's, ob- he's observing this. He's just saying this is true of, Peter's, of his readers. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Can you relate with this? Think about this for a second. Peter's readers... They're not that far removed. This is, only, this is only about 30 years after the events of the crucifixion. Peter's readers, he's saying, you never got to see him walk the earth, and yet you love him. Can you relate to that? I've never gotten to see Jesus walk the earth. And, and um, for some of us, I'm, I'm, my, my mind is geared this way, that's, that's something I have to purposefully Trust God with. I never saw Jesus walk the earth. And, and, but he's saying, you didn't, you didn't see him, and yet you love him. You don't, get to, you don't see him now. We, we read in the scriptures that, that Jesus is living, and he's in heaven right now, and, and he's with us in spirit. 
but we don't see them with our eyes. And, and so, so Peter's pointing out, look at you guys. You love him even though you never got to see him, and, and you don't even see him now, and yet you believe in him, and you're rejoicing in him. And you're rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So brothers and sisters, I, just, I, mean, I mean to encourage you with what he observes in these people. 30 years after Jesus was on earth, people, it's real that people will struggle um, trusting, trusting God, trusting that this happened, trusting that this is real. But look at Peter commending the faith 30 years later, only 30 years later, of these believers who, who were demonstrating the same task we have. Believe in a Jesus that the word tells us about, that we can't see with our eyes, but the spirit bears witness that it's alive. All right. This inexpressible joy, another commentator said, said that this joy, this is a joy that has been infused with heavenly glory and that still possesses the radiance of that glory. It is thus joy that results from being in the presence of God himself. And joy that even now partakes of the character of heaven. It is the joy of heaven before heaven. Experience now in fellowship with the unseen Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is why Christians sing. Because the hope that we possess ought to be producing such a deep-seated joy that we can't express it in mere sentences and words. We've got to put it to music, right? As Peter reads, as Peter's readers continue to believe in and rejoice in this Jesus, whom they've never witnessed die for their sins and rise again, they're being saved as they place their, their, their faith in him and, and rejoice in him. They're actually living out the process of taking possession of their salvation. As verse 9 says, as you do this, as you believe in him and rejoice in him, you're obtaining the outcome of your faith. You're actually, you're being saved as you believe. So there's this, there's this past tense process and then future. God saved you, you're being saved, and you will be saved all throughout this. God caused you to be born again, you're being kept, and you're going to inherit your full salvation. So sometimes in life we get short-sighted. And we allow our circumstances and our feelings to cause us to lose sight of our hope. As Christians, we know that there is a larger context to our suffering. Indeed, our whole lives, not just our suffering. We've been born again. God caused that. We, we didn't. God caused that. It wasn't my doing. If we've been truly born again, then God's going to guard us to the end as well. He's going to make sure that that fickle, fragile human faith not only endures, but grows as it is set upon the hope we have in Christ. So the people to whom Peter is writing in our passage tonight are Christians, not that different from you and I, who are experiencing circumstances that have the potential of taking their focus off of the, insur uh, the assurance of God's work in their lives and on to the uncertain outcome of their present suffering. But colonial... My, my uh, challenge to you tonight from the book of 1 Peter is let's be a people whose hope and joy is steady and unshakable because God started our faith and God's guarding it. All right? That's my message to you tonight. 
Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you'll help us believe the words of Scripture. Thank you that you have begun this work in us, and thank you that you are keeping it. We love you, God. And I pray that the more we grow in love with you and in knowledge of you, it would grow more and more inexpressible. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.